Welcome to the Fast Lane. Nick Miles is our auto expert. So drop it into gear. You've got a green flag. Here's Nick. Oh, Sunday, and uh, it's beautiful. The uh, the Northwest. I, I have to tell you, though, <clears throat> I haven't spent much time in the Northwest, but uh, it is beautiful out here, and... It's not quite as beautiful as Hawaii and Costa Rica where I was this week. Jen's giving me faces. I knew I was going to get that. I knew I was ready to get told off because I've been away for a week. Sorry, Jen. It's okay. You look a little tanner. <laughs> just a little jealous. I look fatter too. Yeah. Just a little, but I didn't I, want to tell you that. I, I rented a car. <laughs> I rented a car when I went to um, Hawaii and uh, it was a Mustang GT. Uh, convertible because you have to do a convertible when you're in Hawaii, right? Of course. And then I sat in traffic all the time. <laughs> it was <really laughs> depressing. And it was beat to hell. Like, <laughs> like somebody had dragged every piece of luggage on the island of Maui in and out of the trunk. It was like just scratched to heck. And I looked at this car and I wanted to cry. But they take it off roading? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and then it was an automatic transmission and it would, if I break, it would shift down really hard. I was like, yeah, it's a rental. Mm-hmm. There you go. They're good on resale, though. You can get them for cheap. Yeah, no thanks. I'm good. <laughs> After 250,000 people have driven them and thrashed them to death. Yeah, so, the road to Hana. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one, the one thing about Hawaii is it's sure, or Maui, which is where I was, it sure is beautiful to drive around, but there's so many tourists. Yeah, and was that's like, the oh. truth. And it's a single lane highway, and there was an accident from the airport the day when the night we landed, and so it took three hours to get to the hotel instead of forty five minutes. Yeah, really I've been to Maui like five times. Have Ever, you? Yeah, have you driven almost all the way around it? No, we just went. Uh, we went around the one coast where we were. Did you see Oprah's yeah. house? No, I didn't know she had a house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, she has a you're good missing car. out. I know my friend had to sell her Rolls Royce for. Her. She wanted to sell her Phantom. Oh. But that was in her car house in Santa Barbara. Mm. So anyway, uh, what's on today's show? Uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up on today's show. It's packed. Uh, I got some stuff that surprised me a little bit too when Jen told me about it. Uh, on our auto expert today, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the trip to Costa Rica, which was celebrating 30 years of um, Lexus. 30 years. That's crazy. In 1989 LS400. And we, I drove one around uh, Costa Rica. So it's still such a great car. Does it make you feel on. old, Nick? I don't know if I was. I wasn't alive when they uh, first came out. Oh, you can try. <laughs> <laughs> now, thirty years. They've they've come. Uh, in thirty years, they've come. What took a lot of other car companies a hundred years to do. Mm-hmm. So they've done. They've done pretty well. Um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, Miriam Joie is going to join us on the uh, radio. She's in to talk about some tech and some cool stuff. Um, and uh, Racing. Uh, took a racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a whole slew of stuff I'm going to talk to Miriam about. It, the thing is, too, I don't want to paint the lines too much about what we talk to Miriam about because we never stick to the script. Wheels gets a bit crazy. <laughs> um, we we're going to be talking about the, uh, the e-racing. The Formula E was yesterday... Um, this is the interesting thing about Formula E. So the electric racing and then the power goes out in New York. We'll see if that's a conspiracy or has anything to do with it. That's, that's coming up. Uh, also going to talk about this. Uh, this is what surprised me on the show. Uh, you know, the Apollo 11, we're going to celebrate 50 years of Apollo 11. Uh, July 20th, it was 50 years since the Apollo 11 mission. And that mission would not have happened. At least we didn't know about that mission if it wasn't for Ford. Mm-hmm. Ford made that mission possible, at least the communication of that mission possible. Yeah, we're going to have the historian on today. Yeah, his, his name is Ted Ryan. Uh, he is Ford's archivist and heritage brand manager. Uh, Ted is going to tell us about how Ford made that Apollo 11 mission possible. Uh, what else are we going to talk about? We're going to have, uh, we're going to discuss what's happening in electric cars with Anton Woolman. Everyone accuses me of just spending all my time knocking Tesla with Anton. I'm not. I'm not a huge Tesla fan. Um, not because of the cars, because I think they're really intuitive and great pieces of machinery. But I think the business plan is not cool. And I know Miriam will have something to weigh in that because she's an owner. She liked it so much she bought a car. Um, and we're also going to talk about oh, what else we got coming up, Jen. We're going to talk about oh the e-scooters. Yes, e-scooters. Uh, these are my favorite thing right now. I have a pair of the roller skates, the electric roller skates. 
Um, <laughs> that would be funny to watch Segway you make on. him. Oh. Can and we they videotape that? Go, yeah. They go, on, uh, they go on each foot. But I haven't opened them yet. I've had them for like seven months, and I haven't opened well, them. You yet. have been home to play with them. No, yet, that's true. So, so I, I haven't opened them yet. I don't know why. I'm. I just see bad things. Maybe are going to happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got a we'll you with bubble wrap. <laughs> let's be honest. When in the Northwest can you use anything outdoors? It's like three months. I rode right my now. motorcycle to work today for the first time. I've, the first time I've had out this year. How lame am I? <laughs> I shouldn't even have a motorcycle. That's how lame I am. Um, and then all the things they tell you not to do with a motorcycle. You like, do. I do. They say that you should always wear long pants and long sleeves. I know. You should always wear boots. Okay. What do I have on? So the listeners can't see you, but let me just tell you, he's got red sneakers, bright green shorts, and a maroon and black striped shirt. Yeah. Who dressed close. you this morning? <laughs> The mirrors in my house are all broken. Or is that all you so. had left over from your no, trip? Yeah. <laughs> the only things that weren't crawling around the laundry basket on their own. So, uh, you know, I just, like, I just, I'm, I'm, in, I don't, I'm in one of those don't care days. Like, What's radio, you know? baby? No one yeah, can see us. <laughs> see? That's why I do radio, because I have a face for it. And apparently the clothes for it, according to Jen. I shouldn't be anywhere else but radio. Um, so, oh, you know what? The color of my shoes don't clash with my shirt, though. Uh, that's like a cherry red, and that one's kind of like a polo shoe. Burgundy. It doesn't matter. All right. This is a car show, by the way. I know. Jen's Fashion Hour, brought to you by (laughs) GiveNickAHardTime.com. But the Triumph, it doesn't even match the Triumph. Oh, dude. (laughs) The Triumph's beautiful. Do you match your truck? (laughs) Yes. You do? You dress for your car? Yes. Right. Sometimes I do. You're scaring me a little bit now. My car's black. My truck's black. Right? It's pretty simple. What color's your car? Black. What color's your other truck? Black. All right. See. Oh, the, the teal one. And then I have a teal truck, too. Wow. All right. All that coming up on the Our Auto Expert. We're not Honestly, this is the last time we're going to talk about colors. Coming up, uh, real car stuff. We're going to get out of the way now and let... Let the people that pay the bills that do some talking. <laughs> so depressing. Keep listening. More of our auto expert with Nick Miles is coming up. Start your engines and you're off. Back to our auto expert with Nick Miles. All right, so um, Miriam Joas joined us in the studio. Uh, Miriam, if you uh, listen to podcasts, she has an amazing podcast. If you follow tech, uh, you can follow Tank Girl without the valves yes. on all the social medias. Is that right? Yes. Where, where do we find the, it? The podcast is mobiletechpodcast.com, and it's on all the big podcast apps. And Tank Girl is my handle on Twitter without the valves, T-N-K-G-R-L, and yeah. on Instagram. And, and I love uh, watching your stuff, too. You don't hold back. No, you There's know. There's many victims of Miriam. Well, you know. <laughs> you gotta I, be real, right? I watched one of your reviews on something, and I think it was the Google Pixel 3 and uh, the XL and the regular, or the 2 and the XL mm-hmm. and the and you didn't hold back. You told everybody what was wrong with it. I like People that. People are gonna spend their hard-earned money. It's not yeah. as bad as paying money on a car, but, right. you know. Yeah. yeah, on a phone. I have a Google Pixel. Which, no, it's on a phone show, but I have a... An, uh, <laughs> it's a, a color a, and a phone show. I have a, exactly. I have, a, I have a 3XL. Yeah, me too. With a bad mic. Oh, and a I bad can't, mic. I can't get them to replace it. Yeah, they're, yeah. Google is hard to deal with customer service. So. Yeah, whatever. I just bought Samsung. I gave up. Um, so let's talk about... Uh, so they recently had the Formula E in Brooklyn... And uh, strangely enough, Manhattan had no power the oh, same day for like well, 72,000 people lost power in Manhattan. It seems strange that we have an electric car race in one part of the city and the other part of the city, and no explanation <laughs> yet doesn't have any power. But well, they, saying, s- they said there was a transformer substation that, that crapped out in Manhattan, so I don't know about... But I mean, look, you never know, it right? It crapped out because they sucked all the power into Brooklyn for the Formula E race. Uh, I, the fire department said they were putting out multiple locations of fires of Transformers, which sounds wow. to me like shenanigans are afoot. But I'll leave it to the conspiracy theorists to uncover that one. Oh, I'm sure they'll find something. Um, 
Formula E racing, when this, yeah. when, when electric car racing came about, uh, and everybody, you know, a couple of people started to promote it, everyone was like, how <laughs> stupid is <laughs> yeah, that? Right? Seems to have worked in somebody's favor. I mean, it's not just Formula E, right? There, there's like all this other stuff happening in electric motorsports. Let me uh, show you some stuff. Of course, Pikes Peak is pretty yeah. much dominated by electrics because it's not, uh, the, um, you know, electric motors are not affected by altitude. Right. So, I mean, we've solved this on gas cars with big turbos, but yep. big turbos, you know, much more complex than an EV. Um, then there is, of course, the Isle of Man is going electric. At yeah. least they have an electric motorcycle yeah, yeah. section now. Yeah. Uh, we've got. I, I looked at the Harley Davidson electric motorcycle because yeah. I have a Triumph right now, and yeah. I looked at the Harley Davidson one. I think you know what I could. I don't ride mine enough to to you know I could trade it in and not miss it and have an electric bike because I don't do it for the noise. There's a lot of guys who ride their bikes for the noise. But it's twenty four thousand dollars. Yeah, it's like the price of a medium sized car. Yeah. That's um, not happening. And I'm just so, uh, FIA World Endurance is now yeah. doing an electric thing. Okay. Uh, pa uh, Paris Dakar has at least had one EV enter that finished the race. Right. Which is, you know, technically the thing you want to do is endurance, right? right. Part that's hard. Formula E, as we mentioned, there's a bunch of uh, vehicle specific races like Jaguar has an iPACE E tro trophy, and there's like, I think, a Tesla race. Electric GT, where, where there's been some talk about 24-hour Le Mans cars that are EV-based. And, and then, there's, of course, the World Solar Challenge, very different EV race, very slow, but super efficient EV race. And then, you know, we're looking at, again... Can it um, be a race if it's slow? I guess it can. Well, it's a matter of who gets there first. So <laughs> it could take five days. And, you know, it's like, it's I like, guess... It's like watching golf. Yeah, it's probably pretty boring. But the technical aspects are interesting. I think that what I'm excited about is that, you know, the record at Goodwood 20 years ago, yeah. right, by done by an F1 car, yeah. has basically been beaten, not officially because it didn't happen during the actual official timing, but during testing, yeah. uh, by something like two seconds. They beat, uh, they beat the uh, Yeah, the, the IDR, the Volkswagen Pike Speak race car, yeah. did the Goodwood. Uh, hill climb in like, I don't know, I have to look it up, 38, 39 seconds or something, less than 40, which mm. is like the big deal. So, well, it's interesting. Yeah, I, my mind started to wander a little bit in that because I was thinking about this. Why um, why aren't you doing the Rebel Rally in an electric car? That would be, you need to find another woman to do that with you. Yeah, that would Rally be. Racing Electric, I think is coming. I mean, the, the reality is if you look at half of, a good half of the, Racing that happens that's not electric right now yeah. has some kind of hybrid system. Curse for Formula One. Because it makes sense. Right? Almost all the Mon cars are hybrids. Instant power. You, you need, I mean, you need to recuperate. Like, remember, there's getting much more stingy on how much gas you can yeah, use. Yeah. So you have to kind of recycle. And the only way to regen is either to compress some air and then release it later, right. or charge a battery and release that through an electric yeah. motor later. There's also a gyro ones based. I don't yeah. know, remember Porsche made one that had a big, like, spinning cylinder that they sped up and then the inertia you know basically recoup that energy and they could reuse it later it, it was crazy i don't remember when that was done it was like a f couple of decades ago and you know here most we are of these now. things don't make sense efficiency wise for well that's the thing 30 percent efficiency so. for a gasoline engine 90 yeah. percent efficiency for electric and yeah. motor right and so, hydrogen will be the big thing, right? Because the, that technically is electric, but then you have the fuel on board correct. that you can go. But so for once racing, the charge for runs racing, out. it's a matter of how much fast, how fast can we make batteries that are lighter? Because yeah. in racing, you don't need big batteries, right? Unless you're doing Le Mans and you right. can only charge once, right? <laughs> like, then you need a big battery. Well, Formula E is the same way. Like you're allowed to swap a battery correct. out. I think so. There you go. It's like once. So, but it, uh, I think hydrogen makes sense for long, long distances right now. But if you, it's not as efficient. The 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 fuel cell conversion process is not as efficient 50, as fifty percent versus yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so, but it's still a lot more efficient than gas. I mean, the big thing is a lot of people I'm sure on the show here are going to say, "Well, what about the noise? It's very different, right?" Like obviously that's the thing. Like to me personally, as a motorcycle rider, I love the idea of electric bikes. But what would really scare me is that I have no way of telling people I'm there, right? right. Like that's the thing about like I'm not a big fan of super loud motorcycles, but not, the fact that I can rev my engine. You know, let to let out. somebody know, hey, I'm behind I you. Honk, I honk my horn. I come out into an intersection and someone isn't looking at me. I'll honk my horn and they'll turn around and look at me because I want yeah. I want you to know I'm there. Like yeah. I don't I don't need to tell you you've done anything so wrong. So maybe that's the solution because I mean honestly that's for cars. I, you know I don't care that it makes no noise, but for for a motorcycle as a rider, it's kind of scary. Sometimes. I just had three different vehicles in my house. I had the Rav Four Hybrid, 
which mm-hmm. uh, runs on electricity alone, EV mode, low mm-hmm. mode, low nomads, and, and the Corolla, mm-hmm. basically same sort of vehicle. They have a horrible noise when you back up because that's when they're in EV only mode. Right. And it sounds like the brakes are stuck. The screeching's like, Oh, goodness. It's, I don't know who thought that was a good idea. And then the Range Rover P400E, which is a full-size Range Rover that now does about 30 miles on a single charge. So they say, I haven't quite ever got that myself, but you can charge it up and, and do, it's a high plug-in hybrid. That beeps when you back up. And if the Range Rover wasn't big enough, it now feels like a delivery truck. Me, me, oh, me. God. So it is a, a tractor. You know, in Europe, what is it? Two weeks ago, they just passed yeah, the law. The law. It's going to be twenty-one miles an hour. Twenty-one or something. Yeah. There's going to be a law. Yeah, under twenty miles an hour, the vehicle has to make a sound. Now you the know, the iPace makes an awesome sound. The guys yes. for, who did the uh, audio for the movie Judge Dredd designed <laughs> the sound for the new iPace, and I'd buy that car for the sound alone. That's the and best. And I actually part of think it. that's one of the, ironically, one of the areas where the traditional car makers are well equipped because BMW and Audi, for example, have been pumping artificial noises in their cars forever now. Yeah, the so speakers. they actually know how to do this right. Yeah. And if it's going to be a law, for better or for worse, yeah, let's let's make some good sounds, right? Right. I want I want my car to sound like a spaceship. Like honestly, I'm <laughs> kind of bummed that they're gonna pass these laws because as a Tesla owner and driver, I don't really. I love the fact that this is perfectly silent. Now, of course, if it's a sound that goes to the outside, it's probably not gonna be loud enough to be heard on the inside. But That's I still find it really weird. You know, like I get it. You know, when you're a pedestrian, you don't hear that electric car creeping up on you. It's kind of scary. And for people who are, uh, you know, uh, sight impaired, they rely on the ears a lot. It's really important for them to hear. But I question this because, you know, I don't know. I'm not sight impaired, but I think a lot of people I know are sight impaired are so good with the ears. I would be surprised if they didn't hear the tires rolling towards them. That, that, that's not the issue. It's the millennials. You think so? Yeah, they're always got their, their phones. headphones on and yeah, they're looking down their phones. Attention. Yeah, they're gonna they're the ones that are gonna get killed by electric cars. Which I, you know what? I mean they might anyway. I have to be <laughs> I feel that I have to be I feel that I have to be more cautious when I drive my Tesla at slow speeds around pedestrians like small streets or parking lots because they definitely don't pay attention. We're gonna continue this conversation after a break. Miriam Joie is with us in the studio. Uh, we're talking about electric cars and electric racing. You're listening to our auto expert. You can find us twenty four seven at our autoexpert.com and all the social media channels. Stay tuned. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Jump right in and put the pedal to the floor. Our auto expert with Nick Miles continues. In the studio today with us is Miriam Joie and of course Jen is here uh, making sure I stay <laughs> Whatever. What do you do? What do you do? You uh, you cattle prod me into doing the right things. Yes. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, we're talking about electric racing. So uh, Formula E just happened, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, or the, maybe the underneath of the iceberg. Maybe there's a lot more famous stuff there. We're talking about the uh, Goodwood Hill Climb. We're talking about uh, some of the different things like Pikes Peak that's going on. Uh, with Formula E cars, uh, f- it looks like there's other races that are being created even as we speak. Yes. Uh, so it turns out that there's this Odyssey 21, which is an electric off-road race truck that Formula E is kind of promoting and showing around to kind of promote a race idea that they have called the uh, um, Formula E Extreme. Now, I guess that would be kind of like a Baja or Paris-Dakar type deal. I don't know where it would take place. Um, but uh, basically, yeah, they're showing off this truck. It looks really badass. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, EVs are, I think, pretty good for off-road because a lot of torque. And, um, you know, as long as you got um, some energy to put in those batteries, somehow you're good to go. Especially since the segments are pretty short. Do you think there is uh, the possibility of perhaps at... Um, say something like the Ridge Motorsports Park in Seattle or near Seattle in Union, Washington or PIR in Portland or something doing a bring your electric vehicle to the track day where you could, could be fun. race it. I mean, the recharging might be a pain in the backside because you can only do so many laps before it needed recharging. There's no I battery mean, swapping. A lot leaf. of racetracks that, that have like autocross events like NASA and stuff, they have, um, they have superchargers or really high speed chargers for, because a lot of Tesla people like to do it. Yeah. Um, the nice thing is that more, the more modern EVs are much more resilient to, um, you know, heat degradation over time. So, 
And with large battery pack, you can probably do several runs of a track before you really have to worry about charging. So I think as long as the chargers are there, people can start bringing their EVs. And I think um, SCIA and NASA and other, um, you know, um, bodies that that promote racing for amateurs should should you know I think should promote that. You know, some basic safety stuff, helmets. Hopefully you get track insurance for your car. Cause <laughs> Would you <laughs> race your trouble. Tesla? Would you take your Tesla to a racetrack? Probably not, simply because it's not a performance model. Right. I, I think you'd want the performance if you did that, and I'd probably want to get special pads and wheels and tires to do it. You think that, I mean, I'm always worried about it, because we know Tesla's are great on the 0 to 60. There's nothing. So the Model really 3 do. doesn't deteriorate with heat, okay, but so the S do does, time, yeah. because it's a different motor yeah. technology, permanent mm-hmm. magnet. So... Um, you know, it's not a subject to it. And also the performance model has special conditioning for the battery. Like you can push a button like 20 minutes before your race for the whole day and set everything up. Like the motors are heated up and the battery's right. heated up and right. it's ready to rumble. And then you can just do track after track after track until you need to charge, which will probably be on a short racetrack. You'd probably do at least 15 laps before you need to charge. Wait, I mean, I'm not talking about being an empty, but right. being at a place where you should probably charge to get more energy than stuff. I think we need to get the local electric um, supplier in on this because they could sponsor it. Either like it, Pacific, it, yeah, Pacific whatever, Power, Power or, yeah. you know, PGE in Portland or uh, whoever covers you. I'm not sure who covers Union Washington, but uh, get the local power company involved because there's nothing they like more is is promoting superchargers and sticking their you know electric electricity available there um it would be kind of fun and you know tracks that also have a drag strip would be double double whammo right because yeah. you could do you know drag racing between different i mean EVs. i'm sure you can almost set the straightaway up in any track to be a to, yeah you know, true to be the drag true. strip so you could do drag in the morning and then, yeah, you know, like yeah. laps in the afternoon. I mean, look, it's inevitable that within a few years, with more and more UVs out there, this is going to happen. Well, and cool, rusty people starting girl. to modify UVs too, right? <laughs> people are starting to tinker and and jack up their EVs and make them faster and perform better, light like throw out weight and all kinds of stuff. You They're know, all geeks though. Well, you know, I would argue that car car nerds that fix up cars are also geek, yes, but in the yeah. car world, so right. like there's a cross yeah. section there, yeah. right? Like I know people like look at me, right? I am a bit of a nerd. Like I have a podcast about telephones and, right. and mobile mm-hmm. tech, but I love cars and my car enthusiasts. I yeah. love driving stick. I love driving, you yeah. know, a nice screaming flat six or V8. Yeah. Like I love it, but at the same time, I also love the EV stuff. So for me, I think there's I think there's a lot of crossover. I'm and just fascinated by things I don't understand. And so I, I want to experience EV racing because I want to, I want to understand it more. I want to understand what it's like and how far you can go and what, how the car holds up. I mean, I'd like to, I'm super interested in how a Prius, well, not a Prius, a Leaf would hold up on that. I'm super interested because we, I, I'm pretty sure like the Model S is going to just be amazing, but I'm interested in how like people who bought electric cars, yeah. you know, I'm an i3. How does it hold up yeah. on the racetrack? And I think very few people have taken those out because they're just not considered very fast compared to the Teslas. I think that's why the Teslas are so dominant in that area, right? I mean, in fact, there's a lot of races between Teslas and normal cars, like drag racing, like Hellcat versus Tesla Model S. You see that on TV, on YouTube all the time, right? Yeah. Yep. But I think that you're right. As it gets cheaper, like once Volkswagen does their ID cars and they're sold in the US and they're going to be 25, 30,000, right? We're going to start seeing people go like, hey, instead of like, Putting high performance cars that are forty, sixty, seventy, hundred thousand dollars one against each other at the drag strip. Why don't we take your Leaf Seven, Plus yeah, and my, my VW ID? <laughs> or how about like used uh, electric cars? Like I'll take my fi- Fiat Five Hundred versus your Ford Focus EV from ten years ago. <laughs> this See conversation will be continued. I can feel it coming. <laughs> we're going to talk about this. I uh, just want to uh, alert you. Coming up next, we're going to get a chance to talk to uh, Ted Ryan from Ford, and he's going to tell us how Ford made the original Apollo Eleven mission absolutely possible. Without Ford, it never would have happened. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. Uh, Find us at OurAutoExpert.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and that Instagram thing. See pictures of new cars, even my face. Stay tuned. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. 
Our Auto Expert continues. Here's your host, Nick Miles. I have to say, I hope you're enjoying summer driving. This is definitely the weather to do it. All right. So, um... I was surprised when I found this out, but the Ford helped enable the Apollo missions to land on the moon. With the 50th anniversary of the moon landings on July 20th, uh, I wanted to share some information with you and bring somebody on to talk about this. A surprise that actually that mission would never have happened. At least we would never have known about that mission if it hadn't been for Ford. And joining us on the phone is Ted Ryan. He is Ford's archivist and heritage brand manager. So this was a surprise to me, Ted. Is it a, was it a surprise to most people to know Ford's involvement in the Apollo mission landings? Uh, Nick, yes, it is, and, and thank you so much for having me on today. Even with our own associates, it's been a bit of a surprise uh, the past six months as, as I've been walking around Ford telling this story and, and trying to gain some, some traction. So, yes, it is a surprise, but Ford Motor Company, uh, via Philco Ford, its, it's space subsidiary, uh, played a huge role in landing man on the moon and communicating that uh, back, back and forth. So tell us what Ford's role in that historic moment was. Okay, I've, I've got to take you back a little bit. Uh, so Ford purchased Philco. Philco invented the miniaturized transistor, uh, enabling uh, uh, satellite communications. And Ford purchased them in 1961 and formed the Ford Philco unit. Ford had an aerospace unit already. It folded it into it. So Ford Philco was granted the... Uh, the contract to build Mission Control Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, so that famous Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagles landed that. Uh, Mission Control Center is what uh, Ford Philco built. Uh, the, the, the numbers are just staggering, more than 60,000 miles of cable, uh, 1,500 different items of, of, of telemetry data. At one point, it was the largest housing and television uh, switching equipment in the world. So those visual images that you have when you see mission control, the, the giant visual map, everything, that was conceived and built uh, by Ford Philco. And then how did that play a role in the event itself? So, uh, you know, the, the, the center itself was really the heart of space travel, right? It was, and, and there's one, it's my favorite quote, and I actually have it on the front of the notebook that I started. Uh, the mission control, I'm sorry, I'm reading this from a 1969 document. The mission control center had to be designed, uh, designed to do things that had never been done before, but because it wasn't time to wait, built with the electrical technology available in 1960. And that's what Ford did. So the, the ability to track the spaceship as it moved, uh, the Apollo 8 mission, which was before 11, obviously, but where the, the lunar module went around the moon and they lost uh, touch with it because, you know, the moon blocks the transmission. That ability to recapture the signal, that was based on uh, Philco Ford satellite uh, and communications uh, satellites. And then the, the way that the data was presented, the visual look where uh, Philco did three years of research to discuss or to, to discover what is the best way to present data where the flight controllers can make instantaneous decisions? And it was decided that a combination of visual, the giant map on the wall, the digital, the, the, the lights and the screens in front of them, and then analog, the, the dials and switches, was the best way to communicate this data. They had to make instantaneous decisions. And if you watch the moon landing, the Apollo 11 landing, you'll see that a, a switch actually went off, which almost caused them to abort the landing. And it was the ability to process that data that was conceived by Ford Philco and built out at Mission Control. So all those years ago was obviously a historic moment. Take us through what, what's been going on with Ford and, and this now. Was that the, the last time Ford had their hands involved in space travel, or have they continued to be involved in advancing tech and discovery? They were. Ford rebranded that unit as Ford Aerospace in 1975 and played a, a role in all of the space shuttle missions. They actually redesigned the center uh, to accommodate for the space shuttle. Uh, they did a great ad uh, where it says, Philco Ford has been with the astronauts every step of the way talking about it. Uh, Ford sold off the aerospace unit in 1990. But that same technology, the same thirst 
for knowledge is still driving the business today and, and just investing $11 billion uh, in battery electric and hybrid vehicles, uh, launching autonomous vehicle business to scale in 2021. I always joke because the guy that controlled the lunar uh, rover, you know, the, the space buggy, the moon buggy, was actually a, a Ford employee. And so we had Ford Pass and uh, uh, autonomous driving even then because he was sitting on the ground in mission control monitoring how the the moon buggy was was going during Apollos 15 and 16. Uh, so that same spirit of, and thirst for knowledge that, that drove Ford Aerospace to produce mission control and to, to allow, you wouldn't have heard Neil Armstrong's words if it weren't for uh, Ford Aerospace. If it were, I, I keep calling it different things because they change their name so many times. So uh, Philco Ford, you wouldn't have heard Neil Armstrong's words if it weren't for Philco Ford. So what learned, what lessons did, uh, and we'll just call it Ford, we'll make it easy, what lessons did Ford <laughs> learn from their involvement in those historic moments in, you know, out-of-the-earth travel uh, that they were able to bring back for other things? Because we hear many times that the microwave and that uh, seats in cars and all these things are thanks to space travel. Uh, but I presume that some of that information and some of those great leaps for man were used to further other industries, not only space travel. So did Ford actually ever bring any of that in back and use it in cars or use it in other things that they were doing? They did, and it's interesting that you bring it up in that particular way because a lot of the engineers would rotate through uh, the Ford Aerospace back to the company, and some of the changes that you saw were, were simple ones like the way that the, the radio systems were reintegrated, uh, you know, making it more uh, compact and concise within the car. Some of the aerodynamic research that they would do, the people that would work on the uh, – on the satellites, particularly the launches, would take that aerodynamic learning, bringing it back to the company uh, when you see a classic wind tunnel testing and some of those aerodynamic uh, elements. So the main thing is the quest for knowledge and remaining curious. So if you were a scientist with Ford Aerospace and you're reassigned back into Dearborn and you're working on cars, you're bringing that same curiosity, that same scientific uh, thirst back and forth back to the company. As part of this project, I've actually gone back and interviewed and done oral histories with several of the engineers uh, who've worked on the the NASA program. And, and it's interesting, they do go back and forth from the auto industry to the aerospace because it's that thirst for science that's driving uh, driving the scientists and driving the research. So that was back then, and I know looking at Ford now and looking at some of the innovations uh, the engineers uh, have, for instance, growing soy to fill seats in cars or using bottles to make interior door panels or whether it's inventing something that uh, helps test the durability of the seat and making sure that the blue jean dye doesn't rub off on the inside of your car seat. Do you think that anything at Ford today is different uh, and is I guess, monumentally changed f for, because of this program? Or do you think that this program really was much more of a standalone item? No, I don't. I think this program incorporated in the Ford core belief of freedom of movement and, and freedom because the, the soybean example you used is actually interesting because it's being reused now, but that was started by Henry Ford in the 30s. Uh, to use soybean and the manufacturing of automobiles and to test like that. So I, I would say that it's in the Ford DNA to be insatiably curious and to use that scientific thought, that thought process that brought you the V8 flathead, that brought you the soybean uh, infused car, that, that brought all the changes over time was just one more element within Ford Aerospace. Uh, when I have talked to the scientists, when I've talked to the engineers, and when I talk to them today, and, and you know, as they have contact or take the tours within the archives to learn about the past, it's part of the Ford DNA to have that incessant curiosity and the spirit to always innovate. Uh, if, if there's one hallmark of Ford Motor Company, it's been innovation over the years. If you look at the, the advent of safety glass, the 
uh, the all, the, all the, the different innovations that Ford has done over the years. So the Apollo mission, it's interesting, there was a quote from one of the oral histories at the time that said that Philco was chosen, it was not the biggest bidder for the project by any means. You had IBM and AT&T and uh, Bendex and, and Hughes Aerospace and Lockheed, uh, but Philco was chosen in part when the NASA executive said, because they knew they had the might of the Ford Motor Company behind them and that they would, Ford Motor Company would ensure that it worked and would do anything to make sure that it was successful. Uh, because like I said, they were, they were making up technology uh, that, that, what, that didn't exist at the time. How are Ford going to partake in the celebrations of 50 years of uh, man's first steps on another, uh, uh, or another sphere? I wouldn't call it a planet, but it, another sphere. It's uh, primarily it's it's internally focused with the employees to celebrate what we did in the past and how that relates to the business today, and that's what matters. And just some of the examples I threw out the the displays that we're creating for the employees will highlight the advent of that technology. There's one other line that I love. Uh, they had to make a major computer assisted decision making capability, which no one had when Philco Ford received the contract. Uh, and, and implement it within two years. Well, we're doing the same thing now as we're introducing our battery electric vehicle line and enhancing our hybrid line and the work that we're doing with Argo with the autonomous vehicle program. So that same spirit of technology is being applied today with today's real life business decisions. And that, you know, we did it once before in 1969 and, and we can do it again today. And it's that same message. Uh, that we're relaying to our employees. So most of our, our celebrations are internally focused with our associates as we celebrate an achievement that we did in the past and, and we look to the future with that achievement knowing that we can do it again. If we don't understand our history and our past and where we came from, I think uh, the truth is we are uh, unfortunately going to repeat it in a, in a sense of making mistakes, but let's hope we can repeat it in the innovation that Ford uh, celebrated. Well, uh, congratulations to Ford for being part of a 50-year history and the first footsteps on the moon. If, uh, if someone wants to find out more about uh, this, is there anywhere that they can go, Ted? Uh, there will be on the 20th, we're going to uh, launch a blog post on Medium that is going to have all of the details. I gave you a very high-level version of the history, but it's going to have the details of what Ford did and how we did it, uh, uh, you know, the different partners that we worked with over time. Uh, so the Medium blog will be available on the 20th. And if I can, I have our, our PR folks give you a link uh, for that site when it's going uh, to go live. Ted, it's been, great a, it's been a pleasure having you on uh, a very monumental part of American history, a very monumental part of uh, Ford's history. Ted Ryan is the Ford archivist and the heritage brand manager celebrating 50 years of Ford helping get an American man on the moon, which, of course, we all know is Neil Armstrong. Who knew Ford had their fingers so embedded in space travel? Uh, you're listening to Our Auto Expert. If you want to find out more about that, We'll be sure and post on our social media website, Our Auto Expert, on uh, the Facebook page, on also Instagram, and, of course, Twitter. We'll give you that information as soon as that launch of the actual website showing Ford's in-depth involvement in putting a man on the moon. We'll be back. Coming up, Miriam Joie's in the studio. We're going to talk more about Formula E and Tesla and modern-day travel. Don't go away. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Our auto expert will be right back. And that includes my rental insurance on my office in San Francisco as well. Yeah. So I really don't know. I couldn't. I think my insurance for the cars is 150 out of that, probably. I have great insurance too, because insures all all of our gear, broadcast gear, and vehicles that we rent. I think the thing is to lump it together and yeah. have a good driving record, no accidents for a really long time, all that stuff. It adds up. Yeah, I think I've had an accident. Uh, no, touch radio, touch microphone. I, don't, I was going to say, don't, <laughs> don't even jinx me here, <laughs> anybody. Uh, Nick Bulio, um, probably butchered his last name, joining us on the phone. Uh, Nick is from uh, insurancequotes.com. So here's the deal. Uh, most of us don't understand either purchasing a car and the financing or insurance. Uh, are we on board with most other Americans, Nick? Uh, you know, that is pretty uh, accurate. Yeah, I would I would say so. Insurance is one of those things, and I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, 
it's it's one of those things that everyone knows they kind of need it, but all of the intricacies and nuances most people just don't bother with. It's sort of a, you know, they purchase it and that's it. And, you know, so helping folks figure out some of those nuances is, is one of the things that I uh, do in, in writing the pieces I do for insurance quotes. It, one of the things that I like to do is uh, have my insurance tailored for me personally because I'm I'm very different from 99.9% of other people. I mean, I have vehicles in my driveway that are, you know, jacked up on 35-inch tires and need a ladder to get into. And then, you know, I, I will go somewhere like Costa Rica and rent a car and I want to make sure I'm covered. So it's are most Americans, do they fall in between the lines or are many of Americans like me and Miriam uh, and Jen sort of fall outside of the lines? It seems I, I, the, that the average American driver, um, their insurance needs aren't necessarily going to be, well, I hesitate to say this, but I mean, there, there is sort of a, 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 a base middle where um, a standard auto policy is going to suffice. Um, but then when you do get into the weeds of talking to individuals, you do find out that some people have, a lot of people have certain nuances, uh, a car that's in their driveway that they're not driving, you know, what, what should be done with, uh, with that? Um, how do they handle rental vehicles and, uh, you know, things when they're, when they're traveling? So people do have unique needs. Um, and one of the things that I always tell people to do is actually get on the phone with whoever it is that you're buying insurance from. It's so easy to do everything on the internet and just answer a couple quick questions and get a quote and call it a day. But when you talk to somebody, you can do what you were just saying, like have it tailored to your specific needs and the nuances of, of your circumstance. So you guys did a survey and what were the things that most uh, surprised people about that survey? Well, there is, um, there were a couple of findings, um, in, in the survey, that one of the one of the ones that was at the top of the list was that 68% of Americans actually incorrectly believe that comprehensive auto insurance covers car damage from a collision, and this was really surprising to us because that's a pretty big mistake to make, um, and for folks to not necessarily have a good handle on. Um, the difference between, um, say, you know, collision comprehensive and liability insurance uh, was uh, was pretty startling. It's kind of the baseline of where folks should uh, have an understanding because it has to do precisely with, you know, what is actually what are you actually being covered for? Um, and then one of the other things that we touched on in this survey had to do with the increasing popularity of uh, electric scooters and scooter sharing companies that are cropping up in uh, in U.S. cities uh, all over the place. And, and in the survey, we found that 36% of uh, folks incorrectly believe that electric scooter riders are required by federal law to have liability insurance, uh, which they're actually not. Some of the local jurisdictions may vary depending on the city or municipality in terms of what they require for scooter like rental or scooter sh scooter sharing companies but in terms of individuals if you just go out and buy one of these uh, electric scooters that you're really not required to to carry liability insurance uh which is something that uh, a lot of folks apparently didn't uh didn't necessarily know so then then i guess if there is a collision involving a scooter it comes down to either the law or uh then someone taking you to court it doesn't come down to you know that either you get a ticket and you get charged with something for something reckless that you did or or there you know then there's an involvement of somebody taking you to court because they didn't like something that happened uh but there's no there's no sort of ba there's no baseline there no and i mean there you certainly could there, there's two things to consider if, if someone's out there and they own one of these scooters or they're thinking about getting one First, the first call that I would make would be to my auto insurance um, company, and I would say I'm buying one of these. Is there any sort of you know rider or something that that I can get coverage, liability coverage for um, when I'm on this scooter uh, that I could do through through you guys? And chances are they'll probably you know be able to work something out. So you can 
you can set the stage for being covered, um, but I I don't think that most people are necessarily doing that. And and these scooters, you know, they they're electric, and so you know, this isn't a motorcycle. You're not going eighty miles an hour down the highway. You hope, but they can still. <laughs> You know, you, <laughs> but you still can you can get these things up to 15 20 miles an hour and they're very popular in um in cities in urban areas where there's lots of traffic lots of pedestrians and so the potential for something to happen um you know it's kind of high i mean people lose their lives on these things all the time so uh, you know there's a possibility there i'd be more inclined to look at medical coverage because obviously uh well not obviously now i can't say that anymore because most people don't really know but a lot of times if you have an accident uh, in a vehicle it's not your health insurance that covers you but the car insurance that covers you um and it's required to right. under under law um in <coughs> for certain situations uh, I'd be more inclined to make sure that if I came off this scooter uh, in conjunction with hitting something, either mobile or not, that I would have some sort of medical insurance to cover me. So that would probably be my uh, first one. Absolutely. I was going to say, yeah, my second call would be to um, to whoever my health insurance provider is and find out, you know, what are the... You know, what are the stipulations here if I'm involved in an accident on this thing? How does that shake out? And you're right, because that is... Um, incredibly important to to know so so yeah definitely checking in with uh whoever your your health insurance provider is and, and getting that straight one of the things that i mean i always do when i advise people on buying a new vehicle is you know check the insurance rates before you drive it off the lot because you may think that you're getting into something that is safe and is uh is you know, because of its brand, because of its size, because of its its uh, modernity, you could be looking at something that you feel is a, is a good insurance choice, and be surprised when you get an you know the insurance bill uh, goes up. I also thought it was kind of interesting to see that having a, you know one of the incorrect beliefs was having a red car increases your insurance rate. So. Um, you know, well, yeah, two, the two most in, you know, there's Im important things in the world and many people fail at uh, meeting just the minimum bar of it. Uh, listen, Nick, if we want to find out more about this survey, uh, where can we go? Uh, you can go to insurancequotes.com. It is presently uh, up there on our, on our homepage. And um, you can also find me uh, most easily on Twitter at, uh, at Nick Diulio. N-I-C-K-D-I-U-L-I-O. Excellent, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Nick, uh, helping us set the record straight somewhat about how uh, we feel and what we understand about insurances. I'm, I'm now going to be careful when I ride my uh, electric roller skates. Right More Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. He's Nick Miles, and this is our Auto Expert. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, this is the part of the show where we get to be joined by our, uh, we like to call him our mad scientist, and, and he is a little bit crazy. Anton Wallman is here in the studio. Is Jen, Miriam Joar is with us. Anton on the phone. All right, Anton, this, uh, it was a jaw dropper when we read this. The, uh, the head of Volvo considering moving the, com the company out of Sweden. That's right. I mean, he gave a number of reasons for it. For example, uh, lack of ability to recruit talent. And that, of course, raises the question, why is it suddenly so difficult to recruit uh, capable talent to the automotive business in Sweden? And uh, one of the reasons that he gave was uh, just an enormous increase in the level of violent criminality around where Volvo is headquartered in Gothenburg. And that ended up causing quite a bit of a political stir in Sweden in the recent days when uh, this interview became public. Now, I mean, I am not one to be a major conspiracy theorist, but on this occasion, now we know Volvo's owned by the Chinese and there would be nothing better for the Chinese to want to move it to probably China. But is that, is that on the table? Is this the softening of the world before they make an announcement in two or three years? Or is it, uh, it you, just, you just think it's, uh, it, he's really him? Or do you think the Chinese want Volvo in their backyard? As we said during the Cold War, uh, there is no such thing as a coincidence. And I uh, certainly emphasize conspiracy at any and every point. But in this case, I think there's probably a little bit of truth to both of those potential uh, causes of this. One is the idea that 
the Chinese, they're essentially one, almost 100% owners. China owns, uh, through Geely, owns about 95% of Volvo cars. That They have some interest in bringing some of the talent back to China. Uh, yet at the same time, it's also definitely some truth to what the uh, CEO of the uh, car business did say. I mean, he had no reason to make that up. And... Uh, uh, so I think there could be multiple reasons here what they eventually decide to do. We don't know yet. The company has not actually taken any specific action. You may recall that a couple of years ago they um, hired uh, their new uh, chief technologist from one of the uh, uh, top German companies, and they have certainly been able to recruit from some of the other automakers. Yet at the same time, they lost their number two interior designer to uh, Tesla about three years ago. So certainly people do move around and uh, I don't think we've seen enough high profile departures yet to to really warrant uh, that sort of an angle to the matter but uh, I think this is simply a case where we have to monitor what they decide to do here in the coming uh, quarters and years there's one thing the Chinese have that nobody else particularly has like they have and that's bags of money so surely they can offer bags of money to people to come to work for Volvo uh, you know, so recruiting to me sounds highly suspicious because if it's a money thing, but what, why don't they do what m many other companies do and set up studios in San Diego or, you know, in well, London? They have, uh, they have a studio in Southern California. They, uh, uh, have, of course, an increasing manufacturing presence in uh, South Carolina. So they uh, they certainly have done some of those things. But if you look more broadly what has happened recently, you may have seen that SF Motors, you know, the entity that purchased the old defunct um, Hummer factory in uh, somewhere in the in the mid in, in the Midwest. Uh, they of course also hired uh, a couple of years ago through essential an Aqua hire Martin Eberhardt, the co-founder of Tesla. And they were going to make a big splash with their new uh, all-electric crossover that was going to launch in the U.S. in the next couple of years. And now they basically said we're pulling back. They're essentially laying off the vast majority of their Silicon Valley employee base, and they seem to have pulled back on all sorts of ambitions. And it's clear that the Chinese home market no longer affords them the ability to hire and maintain the level of staff that it will take to uh, bring a car out in a competitive manner here in the near future. And uh, this is something that we're going to probably hear more about in the near, very near future, as there are many companies in a similar position as SF Motors was. And we have about 475 of them in China in terms of electric vehicle startups. And I think it's pretty clear that not even the most optimistic of all optimists believe that all of those can come even close to surviving to uh, a full cycle going forward. In, but interesting enough, companies like GAC Motors have uh, opened their third research uh, facility in the United States now, and they've been promising every year that their vehicles will be on sale the following year. Uh, so there's definitely some intent to uh, to do business outside of China. Yeah, GAC tends to promise it's always 18 months out, right? It's always 18 months out. We're going to have a, a distribution network in the United States. And here they have a huge booth always at the Detroit Auto Show. We'll see if that happens yet again for the umpteenth time. So what's happening in a situation like this, it's a, it's a little bit of a game where who will blink first? Because the money that all of these companies are predominantly fed through credit in the Chinese uh, banking system that is heavily influenced by local and regional political considerations. You, you may have know the company Byton, for example, which is heavily funded and headquartered in Nanjing and heavily uh, supported by the Nanjing government. So they, of course, uh, lean on the banks in that particular region to basically fund this company in order to take the company to fruition. And eventually, not every little city, not every little province can have their own automaker because at some point you, we end up in this situation where we have now arrived when there are over 470 of them. So at some point somebody has to blink and that blinking phase becomes a bit arbitrary. So whereas GAC has not yet blinked, or I should say rather their their owners and their creditors haven't blinked, you know, they, they, any one of these parties, they haven't blinked until the moment that they do blink. And as little as a week ago, we had no idea that SF Motors was suddenly going to effectively fold uh, purely out of thin air here, out of left field, and uh, suddenly it happened. So I don't expect these guys to be the last guys where that will happen, and especially in an environment in which China is now cutting their EV subsidies by about half. That becomes a big problem.
All right, so uh, what's the next move from Volvo? Are we going to see an independent inquiry to relocate, or uh, do you think it's just... Well, I think at this point, it's, uh, these were the earliest amusings by the CEO of the automotive business entity, and I, I mean, I, I'm not aware that any concrete decision has been taken, so I think in this case, we simply have to wait to see what they actually do in practice. This was him speaking out in an interview in uh, one of the largest dailies in Sweden, and uh, he just basically gave his concerns. Maybe it was because they've actually planned something that is going to happen right. here just around the corner, right. but we haven't seen anything concrete as of yet. Anton, we'll be back with you in a moment. We'll talk Tesla sales and also about iPace. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. OurAutoExpert.com is the place you can find us 24-7 or on all the social media channels. That's Twitter, Facebook, and the Instagrams. We're right there. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up. From the Pacific Office Automation Studios, this is FM News 101 KXL. Time to set it on cruise control. This is our auto expert. Now, here's Nick Miles. Marion Joie in the studio with us. Uh, also on the phone, Anton Woolman. Jen is here. We are uh, talking about the industry and what's going on. Uh, let's talk about Jaguar for a few minutes, Anton. One of the things that um, we've noticed with them and I've noticed this from the automotive end that they, you know, they had some rough times in the last 12 months and they've basically, like a tortoise, gone inside the shell and uh, really stopped interacting with, uh, stopped spending money on PR and media and a lot of those things. So what's going on with iPace and its sales and how's it doing? So the iPace, which uh, first started deliveries in Europe in September of last year and in the U.S. just uh, barely a month after that, uh, reached by about March of this year an annualized sales rate of just about 20000 a year, which was frankly pretty much as expected. The company hasn't talked much about whether it has yet expanded these sales into China, which was the intent at the time. But, of course, what happened in the meantime is that there's other sales around the world, most notably in China, certainly of all their other models, pretty much collapsed. And in some of the European home markets, the sales of the Range Rover diesels also saw a decline. So the company has ended up on pretty harsh times. And, of course, when it comes to the iPays, the company does not, at least not yet, break out its contribution to profitability. The company has definitely no intent of breaking that out because they don't want people to know their economics of their complicated business relationship with Magna at a bare minimum or how much they are internally subsidizing or not subsidizing their iPay sales. So we're in a little bit of a limbo here. The company has reached a little bit of cruising altitude for, for the iPays, yet at the same time in just the last three or four months, the sales of the Audi e-tron has come up but has already trounced the iPace by almost two to one. Uh, the Audi is selling uh, roughly 30,000 cars per year annualized right now and is still increasing in sales as we speak because they're earlier in, earlier in their launch cycle and hasn't yet launched in a few other uh, geographies. So that's where it stands right now. And of course, we have Mercedes starting this quarter as well. So how big is the market really? Are people simply taking market share from the Tesla Model S and X where sales have declined by almost 50% in just the last six to nine months? Or is the entire market for higher-end electric vehicles, higher-end being defined as those that cost above sixty-five dollars to $70,000, actually increasing? These are the questions that we really would have to resolve themselves here during the second half of 2019. I mean, there's only a certain amount of people that can buy an electric vehicle, right? Uh, it, it's not really available to everybody in the United States, so you have limited people, and those people then you have to convert from gasoline vehicles. Um, and, uh, so that's a, a tough one. And then at the same time, you also have uh, the, the projected, what, 100 new electric vehicles coming in the next uh, number of years? Oh, gosh, it'll be 200 of them by 2022. I think that uh, what the manufacturers are counting on is a greater increase of uh, various flavors of government subsidies, mandates, and other incentives. If you take a country such as Norway, a regular car that is taxed at 100% as an excise tax plus another 25% value-added tax, effectively what we call a sales tax in the United States. So if a car 
were to cost, you know, $100,000 in the U.S., that same car in um, in Norway would be, uh, let's see, $225,000 at a bare minimum. So the incentive to buy an electric car that is not taxed at all becomes very, very high. That's one way to go about doing it. The other way to go about doing it is just giving some sort of direct subsidy. And, of course, governments are uh, all stretched for money and, in general, are not loath to want to subsidize these things very heavily. But that's the tension right now between the mandates of all the automakers having to sell electric cars and the lack of profitability in doing so and what policies the governments are or aren't pursuing in order to uh, make that happen. And that is an enormous tension that is weighing on the profit and profitability of all the automakers. Look at, for example, Daimler for four quarters in a row, believe it or not, four quarters in a row, the company has now warned that their profits are going to be lower and lower and lower. They've had four quarterly straight misses. And uh, this just happened, of course, most recently in conjunction with our CEO transition. And nobody's being dealt a very happy hand here. We just saw two weeks ago that the CEO of uh, BMW is out. So uh, who is next? So let me just, uh, you know, recap this in a sense, too. Uh, There are all these electric vehicles coming that are going to do very well in Europe, but I, if I look at this correctly, look at the U.S. government and our president doesn't seem very favorably uh, interested in bringing more subsidies in for electric cars. Uh, The likelihood is, unless there's a presidential change in the next year and a half, that we probably won't see that. And that does that put into question electric vehicles in the United States? Well, there are many ships passing in the night here. We have federal legislation, we have state legislation, and of course, there are a handful of states, actually just over 10 of them, that have joined together to essentially introduce a mandate that a certain percentage of electric cars would need to be, a certain percentage of cars need to be electric by 2025, about 16% by 2025, and then another 8% on top of that need to be plug-in hybrids. And then it's up to the automakers to basically sell as many units, and if uh, people will not voluntarily buy them at uh, a profitable price, then essentially then what happens is that those automakers uh, have to internally subsidize those vehicles, and they do so essentially by raising the prices on all the other cars that they sell, both in those states as well as in the other states that are lacking such mandates. So if you're living in uh, Randomville, North Dakota somewhere, and you're just out there trying to buy a uh, Volkswagen Jetta or a Chevy pickup truck or whatever it may be, you're going to have to be paying a couple of grand extra in order for somebody in uh, San Francisco to buy an Audi e-tron or Jaguar I-Pace at a few tens of thousands of dollars less than they otherwise would have had to pay. So that is going to be a tremendous tension. And uh, I'm not even sure that most people are aware of what's going on there behind the scenes because this is unlike the uh, tax credit. It's not an actual pure dollar amount that the government essentially shows to you uh, how much you're gaining by doing this and that that money, of course, comes from somebody else. But it's really hidden under the surface of the skin of the entire pricing structure. So we've just started uh, that whole uh, saga and uh, this will be playing out, uh, I think, very harshly over the next couple of years. And we only look at car sales. They're going to be down around 2 million sales this year from 18 million approximately down to around well, 16. Well, not quite. I mean, there were, there were 17.2 last year. Right. The latest projections are there'll be about 16.7 this year. So a decrease by about 500,000. Yet at the same time, if you look at the mix inside the sales that are going on right now, a higher and higher percentage of the cars that are actually sold are relatively speaking more expensive SUVs and crossovers that are going toward the large pickup trucks, large SUVs, as opposed to smaller sedans. I mean, the Chevy Cruze is going away. The Ford, uh, whatever that thing is, you know, going away, their second cheapest car and their cheapest car as well. All of those ones are going away and they're selling more pickup trucks and uh, explorers and expeditions instead. So the units are going down a little bit, but if you're looking at industry-wide revenue, it's essentially looking to be about flat this year because the mix is improving for them. Uh, and and those big vehicles like uh, full-size pickup trucks 
uh, they gain the, a car company a lot more profit too because it's cheaper for them to make it. It should be more profitable, and they have been more profitable, but even that is changing for two reasons. Reason number one is the sheer output of those uh, larger vehicles increasing. Just look at the number of three-row SUVs, new ones that didn't exist before that have entered the market in recent months or the last, at least the last year or two. We've got the BMW X7, you got the Hyundai Subaru Ascent, you got the Hyundai Palisade, the Kia Telluride, uh, you know, you got a several of these all new ones. That, you know, the Volkswagen Atlas didn't exist three, four years ago. So, the new entries in these spaces mean that eventually the profit margins have to come down a little bit there. And then, secondly, what vehicles are going to subsidize all of these EVs in terms of new fees that these companies are going to go have to use in terms of their internal cross subsidization? Well, that is going to be those large SUVs. So the that, that's why there's going to be margin, margin pressure, even for those vehicles in the uh, time periods uh, going forward here. In the few minutes that we have remaining, let's talk a little bit about the uh, announcement between Ford and VW this week. Yeah, so a couple of things happen here. Basically, uh, Volkswagen uh, invested in Argo, which was an entity in which Volkswagen had a minority interest. This is an entity that is focused on autonomous driving. They did so at a pre-market valuation of $7 billion. And between Volkswagen and Ford, those two companies now hold a majority of the shares in that particular entity. In addition to that, Ford bought itself into uh, Volkswagen's lower-cost all-electric platform, the so-called MEB, that uh, where we see the first fruit of that uh, product line in just a few months from now. And they've said that they're going to introduce at least one and perhaps two vehicles specifically for the European market built on that platform, but where we're Ford is going to design the body on top of the platform and its interior. So uh, the one thing that was a little bit surprising here, but probably shouldn't have been at, at the same time, is that Ford is not abandoning its own internal electric car developments. They have two of them, one for the Ford F-150, where they reconfirmed yet again that they're working on an all-electric Ford F-150, and secondly, that crossover that is so-called Mustang-expired, and I think we all have seen it in the studio basically and it's absolutely beautiful that will be out it will be in dealerships next year so ford is continuing with those two platforms and those two platforms will in turn yield other variants in the years to come so the agreement with volkswagen that ford struck here is uh, is an addition to those so there are really no major cost savings here if you think about it which uh, was uh, perhaps a little bit surprising to some the the inside uh, word from my spies in the industry tell me that the, uh, the I think they were nicknaming it the Mach One, but whatever that vehicle, the Model X sort of uh, Ford will will be revealed is likely at the LA Auto Show in November. That makes sense from a timing perspective. The uh, all of the manufacturing people in the industry said that the product is going to go into production in April of next year. So a reveal right. uh, in November of 2019 would certainly make sense from right. a timing perspective. Anton, where can we read your stuff? Seeking Alpha and the Street dot com. Anton Warman, he is an independent investor and analyst. We always thank him for his input onto the show. Uh, Miriam, you got uh, any any plans? You're driving up and down the West Coast? I usually drive the Tesla up and down. It's like a business class flight, you know? Autopilot, right. chill out, if someone's, quiet, If someone's fast. driving and, and they want to listen to your podcast, where do they go? MobileTechPodcast.com, Apple Podcast, uh, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, Overcast, uh, Spotify, it's everywhere. Everywhere. Miriam's Mobile everywhere. Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl. T-N-K-G-R-L. Uh, Miriam, I thank you. Jen, I thank you. You can thank find you. us 24-7 at OurAutoExpert.com. And, of course, on all the sh social media channels that are relevant to your life.